Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. This is the podcast that looks at one film in each episode and uses it to explain the nine types and three instinctual biases of the Enneagram model of personality. One movie, one type. My name is Mario Sakura, and I'll be joined by Maria Jose Munita and Tamar Zanetti. We are the principals of Awareness to Action International, a global consulting and training company that specializes in practical applications of the Enneagram. You can find out more about us and our work at awarenesstoaction.com. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome. We are on to the next episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Uh, we are today talking about the movie Almost Famous in Enneagram Type 2. I'm Mario Sicura, and I'm here with Maria Jose Monita. Hi there. And with Tamar Zanatti. Hello. So, guys, uh, we're moving on to Type 2. And, uh, you, you know, watching this movie, I, I watched it last night. I watched parts of it again this morning. It really helped me understand Enneagram Type 2 um, in a more nuanced way than I think I ever have, right? Which surprised me because I thought I knew everything, but I've come to realize that, wow, man, you can actually always continue to learn things and see finer distinctions and uh, descriptions. So uh, before we get too much into the movie, I, I don't know, with you guys, uh, initial reactions to start us off. I think that for me, the particular characters might not be twos as with the other movies, but the tone of the feeling that I uh, had during the movie was like warm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, warm, was, but not hot. Yeah. Right? It was warm. It was nice. It was just comfortable to watch whatever it was. It could be drugs. It could be, and there wasn't much violence really, but, but, it was just nice to watch and lovely, you know. And, yes. and I think twos have that. Yes, Tamara, how about you? Yeah, I, I can relate to warmth, uh, nice. I can relate to these terms. Uh, I would also feel that I felt lots of human connections, like mm -hmm. connecting a person to person on multiple levels. I mean. Uh, love partners, uh, friends, uh, mother and uh, uh, children. Uh, I mean, yeah, different. Uh, and I have seen also the connections on the other side when it's in turbulence. It's really loud mm -hmm. and right, and and you know, it's it's like the opposite of it. So, so lots of yes. human connections in the movie. Yes, yes, I, I agree. And human connection is what Enneagram Type Two is all about. In fact, we call that. Enneagram type striving to feel connected. Uh, the so so first of all, let's talk about the, uh, you know just a, a real quick overview of uh, the, the movie Almost Famous, and then we'll get into it a little bit more deeply. But it's about a young guy named William who is 15 years old, but uh, pretends to be older and goes on tour with a band called Stillwater uh, to cover them for an article in Rolling Stone magazine. He falls in love with not a groupie but a band aid named uh, Penny Lane, and uh, it is all about the adventures of him trying to get a story out of the band, trying to win their trust um, and confidence um, and deal with all the emotional drama that goes along in that sort of environment. Okay. So um, it was, um, 
I, I think it was a great movie. But anyway, we'll talk more about the movie in a few minutes. Let's talk about the Enneagram Type 2 first. Okay? So we call that, as I said, the striving to feel connected. But there are, you know, I always like to start with the traditional Enneagram here. So pride, why don't you guys tell us a little bit about pride in Enneagram Type 2? Yeah, so pride is these self-importance, these um, the passion of twos that it's like, I'm above you, I know what you need. And I'm doing it for you, but I'm doing what I think you need. And that kind of shows that they feel pride. And the fixation is flattery. And they they do this, they praise other people, they compliment. And we see that throughout the movie, that it's it's a, a, something that some of the characters do. But it, it could be excessive or insincere, especially when it's about furthering my agenda or what, what my interests are. So it's that's the fixation, how what I think and what I do. And I, let me just jump in here because one of the things that really struck me watching this movie, you know, again, the definition of flattery is excessive or insincere praise, right? Uh, so there's a dishonesty behind it. And it really struck me about how much of this movie is about truth, right? And the impact of truth. Uh, the impact of truth on our relationships, right? I mean, what should we expose? What should we not? We always talk about how Enneagram Type 2 is really struggles around issues of boundaries, okay? And so boundaries are not just creating emotional boundaries, but how do we maintain that through the truths or the lies that we tell each other, okay? That, for me, was one of the really interesting themes in this movie, okay, about this deception, that is often behind this need to connect. Yeah, and, and when you think about the truth, to me, it felt all about type four, which is the neglected strategy. So it's the growth path for the two. And we'll talk mm -hmm. about the um, connecting points here, but, but there is a theme that it's what we avoid, but also what we need, uh, where we need to grow, and that has to do with truth. And it's really what four is about. Tamar, do you want to add anything to that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's all about relationships and how to keep this connection with the others. And so all of these are serving that. I mean, the pride, the flattery, the humility is serving, keeping this connection alive. Sometimes in, in an adaptive way, and it serves that uh, looking after the interests of the others, serving them and for... Uh, and, and being nice and building relationships and sometimes the complete opposite. So, yeah, yeah this is what is Inya Type 2 all about. Yeah. As I was reading about humility last night, I, I was struck by a definition or, or something that I probably found in Wikipedia or somewhere, but it says, dictionary definitions accentuate humility as a low self-regard and sense of unworthiness. In a religious context, humility can mean a recognition of self in relation to a deity or deities and subsequent submission to said deity as a member of that religion. Now, this movie was not about religion unless we consider rock and roll to be a religion, which these characters certainly did, right? Um, so, so that was fascinating to me as well to read about humility and see this terms of, you know, uh, of giving in to the music right of of being a follower of rock and roll so i i, I found that to be an interesting uh, piece there so um 
Now, again, when we talk about the strategies, we always talk about how they start with a feeling need. I want to feel a certain way. I want to feel connected in this case. So I think in ways that help me feel connected, and then I act in ways that help me feel connected. And we always talk about how there are adaptive and maladaptive approaches to applying these strategies, meaning we can do them in healthy ways or unhealthy ways. There's a lot of great things about being connected, right? We can't get through life without connecting, but as with anything else, we can either overdo it or do it in unhealthy ways. Uh, Tell us about the preferred strategy, striving to feel connected with the two and the uh, neglected and support strategies. So the the preferred strategy in this case, uh, striving to feel connected as you were saying, it's this starts with a feeling need, and that affects how they think, how they see the world, how they filter it, and they are most of the time assessing how connected I am to other people and what can I do to get closer. And that also implies that sometimes uh, some people I just accept that they're going to be far away and they are kind of out of the group or some people are in the group and we will see this in the movie as well so they do things like helping or they flatter or they seduce to connect the neglected strategy striving to feel unique feels like when it's distorted that unique is will disconnect me if i'm too unique i'll disconnect from people And that's almost like the opposite of what I truly want. However, striving to feel unique can help me set some boundaries and also take care about my own needs. Finally, the support strategy, it's that reinforces my preferred strategy. In this case, striving to feel powerful supports the striving to feel connected. And as as Tamar was saying before, it's you could see that stronger energy in some parts of the the movie it was more eightish and you could see how they could be very assertive and there was this intensity as well uh, that could have to do with the eight Tamara, why don't you say something about that two connection to eight and how you saw it in the movie yeah i mean in in some conversations when when really i mean connection is lost i mean especially with william and a couple of conversations and he's he's like I mean, this cool guy, the nice guy that, I mean, you're seeing it all, I mean, during, I mean, the three hours is being so nice, uh, surrendering to whatever the others are uh, requesting, is really being so assertive, so loud, and so putting himself, I mean, like, I I need to do this and draw the lines. and And then the next scene, he would go back to being that nice and accepting whatever other would yeah. ask him to do. So so this dynamics of the eight and the two going too loud, being assertive and then retreating back and being too nice and uh, boundaryless almost. One of the main characters in the movie was William's mother, forgetting her name at the, at the moment, but she was a pretty intense and fierce character, right? And if you watch Elaine. that movie, Elaine, thank you. So, you know, I I think when you first meet Elaine, it's easy to think that she's could be a one. Yeah. But to me, it became pretty clear she's probably a transmitting two, I thought, right? I mean, just, you know, she was a tough, tough person, but it was all in service of uh, being loved. And at one point, she, it's actually in the beginning of the movie, when she says to the daughter, 
you are rebellious and unworthy of or uh, unappreciative of my love is how she put it i think ungrateful ungrateful yes even worse right ungrateful of my love and that kind of captures this two dynamic this two going to eight of you have disappointed me you have not appreciated me and i'm going to make you pay right and i mean can you imagine saying a harsher thing to your daughter, right? Than than what that was. So um, I think she was a very good example of how twos can be pretty formidable characters. We'll even see this later with Russell talking to her on the payphone, right? And uh, you know, we'll, we'll come back to that part. But uh, it was pre- it was pretty cool. One thing comes to my mind is actually, um, you know, a lot of times the two is called the helper. And it's this idea that I'm here to help. And certainly we see that, right? I mean, they called the uh, the groupies, called themselves Band-Aids as we're here to help, right? We're here to, you know, help you unleash the music. But in our view, that tendency to help is really an outcome of this desire to be connected, right? What better way to connect to somebody than to help them and to serve them? And this is what we see in the, in, in the Band-Aids during the movie. The other thing that I would note is that many times people say that twos give to get, to get something back. And of course, but they want to get the connection back. They want to be loved. They want to come closer to the other person, Uh, not necessarily want something back, like a payback when they give. And, And in this movie, you can feel that, I think. You can feel how they devote their whole selves, I think, to the band. Yeah, they want to be paid attention to or they want to have a place, they want to be close. And that's all they want. Yeah. yeah and yeah. and then the relationship from both sides is is a very uh, kind of a two relationship from the band and from the fans. So the fans are like giving their whole life just to be close to the band. And the band is really in need for friends to uh, to feel uh, or to have this uh, thermometer of how much are we achieving here so even they can feed them with lies in order to keep them fans around so they feel something they say uh, something else and keeping this uh, connection alive so it's a very two-ish uh, relationship from both sides Right. And even uh, at one point, the lead singer of the band, Jeff Jeffrey, says, um, you know, what I do is connect with people. Right. And I get them off and I find that person in the audience who is not getting off and I get them off. And again, you know, for me, it feels very different from the transmitting instinctual bias that we've talked about, right? I mean, uh, to your earlier point, Maria Jose, about the warmth of this, it didn't have that same heat that we see in, say, like a Saturday Night Fever, you know, when we talk about that, right? You know, there was certainly an underlying theme of sex and sexuality during the movie, but it wasn't that same kind of, you know, intensity that we saw in, in the other movie. And I think, you know, interestingly enough, as I was thinking about it, my guess is that the writer and director, Cameron Crowe, is probably navigating and it almost seemed to me like some of the transmitting energy was being filtered through a navigating lens in a lot of ways, right? And we see this in movies, uh, particularly when, you know, somebody is writing about one of the instinctual biases that's not theirs. It's it's just a bit off, right? Uh, I found that interesting. Yeah, the whole so, movie is much warmer than a, a rock star movie. So, I mean, 
yes. Rockstar movie would yes. be more, uh, you know, it's like flashing than that. This one is yes. like uh, less flashing and more warm, having warm it. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to go back. I'm sorry about this giving to get idea. I do think that that's one of the unfair labels that gets put on twos, right? Uh, first of all, show me somebody who doesn't give to get, right? And, you know, I'll show you somebody who's not human, okay? Now, are there altruists out there? Yeah, probably, okay? But, um, you know, most of us are involved in some sort of reciprocal, reciprocal relationship with, you know, the people around us. So, now, can twos be m manipulative and flattering and that sort of thing? Sure. Right. But I think we have to be really careful about assuming that every nice thing a two does is an act of manipulation. All right. So the movie, uh, Almost Famous, starring Kate Hudson. It's not really, other than Frances McDormand, and I don't know if we could call her famous, there are not a lot of really famous people in the movie. The lead guitarist is played by um, Billy Crudup, who, you know, has had a career, but not a huge career. The lead singer of the band Stillwater was played by Jason Lee, who's, again, been in a number of movies, but not a lot of them. In a weird bit of coincidence, the movie opens with the Christmas song from the, the Chipmunks, right, which was a novelty song in 1969. And oddly enough, Jason Lee starred in the movie The Chipmunks as the mm -hmm. human character in the Chipmunk movie. So it's a weird, small world in that sense, okay? A little bit of trivia for those of you, uh, you know, who care about such things. It was released in 2000. It was written and directed by Cameron Crowe, who um, made a number of really nice movies in uh, the, the late 80s into the early 90s. Um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High was directed by Cameron Crowe. That goes back to the, I'm sorry, written by Cameron Crowe, going back to the early 80s. He also did the movie Say Anything with uh, John Cusack, which was a, if anybody has ever held a, a boombox over their head while In Your Eyes played, right, or seen that clip anywhere, that's from the movie Say Anything. Again, I'm talking to younger people and people from outside the U.S., so my references are lost on the two of you, but I'm sure some of our listeners get that. Um, he, also <laughs> he also wrote and directed uh, the movie Singles. Uh, Jerry Maguire, which we are going to come back to next time. <laughs> Uh, then he did Almost Famous, and then he made a few movies that really didn't go anywhere, right? So didn't really pick up. Uh, let's see, who else was in this? So Frances McDormand played William's mother, Zoe Deschanel, who went on to have somewhat of a career. But it's a lot of people who were kind of almost famous, right? You would see them and you'd say, yeah, I know that person, but I'm not quite sure where, right? So I, I felt the title fit. Oddly enough, the guitar player, uh, Russell was originally supposed to be played by Brad Pitt. You know, that's why one of the key lines was, you know what, your looks are becoming a problem for the band, right? And uh, uh, because it was meant to be said to uh, to Brad Pitt. Mm -hmm. um, but, Interesting. Um, I thought they were a bad problem, you know, because he didn't dress <laughs> kind of nicely or anything like that. Yeah. Now that you say yeah. this, it's kind of completely changes yes yes my interpretation of it yes what he was trying to say was he was too pretty and it mm -hmm. was becoming a you know a distraction okay um let's see what else it kind of made a star of kate hudson for a while there she was um, you know big in the early 2000s of uh, both kate hudson and Frances mcdormand were nominated for best supporting actors actress for that movie which was interesting i thought they were both excellent Again, it really helped to cement Cameron Crowe's reputation. It was not a successful 
movie financially. I was kind of surprised by this because it has a really good reputation as a movie, but it only made $47.4 million worldwide on a budget of $60 million, which means it was a big loss uh, for whoever made it. Did you know Tell that about- uh, it's supposed to be Cameron Crowe's kind of real life story? Absolutely right. Go ahead, say more on that. Yeah, that he was a reporter, I think, for um, Rolling Stone magazine and and at a very early age. Yeah, Yeah, as a teenager. Yeah. And so uh, the band Stillwater was actually a composite of a number of bands. Uh, The band Poco, Led Zeppelin, the Eagles, the Allman Brothers, and Leonard Skinner, which is a, a big set of bands for somebody to be following around as a teenager. I mean, particularly Led Zeppelin was notorious for their debauchery. Uh, on on tours and you know uh, experiences with groupies and so forth okay there's my big word for the day maria jose all right <laughs> so um <laughs> so again it's about a uh, an underage reporter going on tour trying to get a, a story about this band that he can turn into rolling uh, to a rolling stone magazine for me the movie you know it has a lot going on right uh it's about the power of love It's about the power of connection and certainly about the power of music. And for me, it really made a good point about how music brings people together, right? And we see a number of situations where that's the case, right? There's a great ability of music to connect people. Did you guys like the movie? I did. Yeah, I I liked it. It's my first time to watch it, but uh, I liked it. Mm. Kind of movie they don't make much anymore, right? Um, Not a lot of, you know... Uh, superheroes and uh, you know and uh, uh, it wasn't a netflix series so it uh, you know for me it was a nice character study got good reviews when it came out um let's see rotten tomatoes gives it an 89 rating and a 92 audience score yeah so, so i think that it feels to me like it's something that cameron crowe just wanted to do yes you know it's like i like these things it's my story i just want to get it and i mean make it a movie it's not it's not thinking about what's going to sell it's what i want what i want to do yes i'm I'm surprised that the movie did not uh, make money but um, it's it's obvious that i mean for me now when i'm looking at it uh, it's obvious that it does not have the ingredients of the commercial commercially successful movie it's a nice movie but does not really Uh, have this uh, commercial ingredients. Maybe this is why. Also, um, you know, for anybody that's a fan of rock and roll, um, particularly rock from the uh, late 60s and early 70s, which which I am, you will not find a better soundtrack on in any movie, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the, you know, the number of songs from major, major musicians, Led Zeppelin, for example, there were four Led Zeppelin songs in the movie. There was Neil Young, there was Yes, there was Jethro Tull, all these bands that they would not have been able to afford had Cameron Crowe not had good relationships with uh, the musicians in the the music community, right? And so, uh, for example, he went to um, Led Zeppelin and said, hey, you know, how about giving me the rights to these songs? And it was the first time they ever let any of their songs be in a movie. They did put their foot down with Stairway to Heaven, however. They decided to save that one and wouldn't give them uh, Stairway to Heaven. But uh, for me, and not just the quality of the songs, but the use of the songs and the placement of the songs was really incredible. I mean, there's um, 
uh, well, there's a couple of sequences we'll talk about uh, as we go, but each song was well-placed to deliver a message through the film. Awareness to Action offers a unique approach to applying the Enneagram professionally with leaders and organizations, as well as for personal development. What makes us stand apart is our Enneagram expertise and focus on understanding human nature. We know people because we see people. And this is a skill set that can be taught and learned. Human nature is complex and simple at the same time. Our mission is to help people see clearly and act accordingly. Why? Because the ability to see ourselves and others clearly and honestly is essential. It enables us to act in more adaptive and useful ways. The multicultural team and awareness to action will help you learn tools and practices to become more aware and also to understand and engage people more effectively. Learn more at awarenesstoaction.com. Join us at 2021 for exciting learning opportunities. So I think this uh, the first scene I want to talk about is the uh, the beginning of the movie uh, that establishes the uh, kind of the mother-daughter-son dynamic and also this issue of truth. The mother, played again by Frances McDormand, is very smothering, right? I mean, she won't let them listen to rock and roll. She won't let them eat sugar. She won't let them do this, do that. Won't let them celebrate Christmas on Christmas, but instead September to make sure it's not commercialized. Okay. And, uh, the, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the daughter even says something about this is, you know, a, a house of horrors or something when she's describing the, the family circumstances. Uh, the other thing that comes out is that they had been lying to William about how old he was. Yeah, so so it's so that was really interesting to me. It's and as you said before, it's it feels it looks like a, a one first because of all these rules. But throughout the movie, both kids said, you know, she does it out of of love, and and it doesn't mean that the one doesn't love the kids, but but it's about I think that I know what you need, and even exactly. if that means that you need to believe that you're two years older. That's okay because that's good for you, you know. Maybe that's too much. <laughs> At least for me, <laughs> yeah. the guy was in shock when he realized that poor boy that he was two years younger than right. he was pretending <laughs> to be, and the impact on the other kids who were making fun of him because of yes. that. Yes, he looked like yes. a baby. <laughs> yeah, and what and what supports us? You're saying, uh, Maria Jose, that. Uh, when you look at the rules, they are not strictly applied all the time. So, I mean, with uh, William, sometimes it's softly. I mean, yes, don't uh, don't get drugged, but uh, it's, I mean, it's a completely <laughs> different way than uh, saying it to uh, to the daughter. So it's it's it looks like it's really out of protection of love, out of uh, the pride of I know your needs, I know what is good for you, and I will do it. I will not ask you about it. So, so it's it's really this relationship of me loving you, me protecting you, maybe taking care of you. Yeah. So the line that the daughter says is, "This is a house of lies," right? And um, you know, again, which gets this idea of the connection between truth, lying, and connecting to people, right? How do we maintain relationships? I mean, you know, both of you, like me, have been married for a number of years, and we all know that, you know, you kind of, 
you know, <laughs> you know, you tell the truth, but you don't tell everything all the time. And there's some things you don't tell the truth about because you know that, you know, well, this is going to, you know, cause a bit more of a problem. So, you know, we all live these lives of little white lies in order to maintain our connections, right? Because as we see later, when they all start really sharing their true feelings on the airplane, you know, I mean, it doesn't, it really doesn't go well when everybody decides to be completely honest. Right. So, yeah. so that to and, me was fascinating. Yeah. And, and, and for the sake of uh, my wife listening to this podcast, I'm saying I don't tell lies. Me neither. Purely hypothetical situation. And, and, and certainly we are all excluded from, Yeah. from that, uh, yes. you know, that, that theory. And there's something else in that uh, part of the movie about the lack of boundaries. It's when yes. Anita escapes her house. I mean, it's not like she's leaving, she's <laughs> <Yes>. escaping. <laughs> and yes. it's like kind of, you know what? It's no boundaries and I need to get out of here. Yes. And it, I think it's because she's just too protective, the mother, and gets too much into what she should eat, listen to, do whatever. And that's a lack of boundaries. Yes. Yes. She's and, 18. And I mean, she's not a kid. She's 18. Right. Right. And it's funny when she does leave. Right. And the mother says, well, you know, you're making a mistake, but I can't stop you because you're 18. And after she gives the hug, she literally runs to the boyfriend's car. Right. And the boyfriend's car literally squeals down the street. And and the mother says, oh, she'll be back. And the girl leans out the window and says, woohoo. Right? It's, you know, kind of an homage to The Simpsons. Right. There's a lot of uh, parts of The Simpsons where that's how Homer will make his exit, you know, run real fast and screech down the road and so forth. So it was I cannot get out of here fast enough. And what that kind of points to is how the two can, you know, in their efforts to connect to people to do what's best for them can drive them away, right? Yeah. And this is one of the fundamental pains that twos tend to suffer. And, and the theme of uh, boundary is all over the movie. I mean, it's like almost in every scene is like, you can see things through whether uh, a lack of uh, setting boundaries or too much intrusion into boundaries of others or people are not are being suffocated because of their boundaries are are being uh, violated so i mean the, i mean the movie is screaming boundaries and just highlighting this uh, as a topic important topic when it comes to twos Yes, you're absolutely right. And that idea of boundaries gets uh, even further established when William meets with, kind of stalks and meets with the um, rock critic Lester Banks. Now, Lester Banks was a real person, right? Um, and he was kind of this um, revolutionary uh, rock and roll critic from back in that period. Died, died early, of course, as if you couldn't see that coming, right? And played by our old friend from The Big Lebowski, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Now, I would watch Philip Seymour Hoffman read the phone book and take out the trash. I find him to be such a compelling character uh, or a compelling actor. Very different character from what we saw in The Big Lebowski. Uh, give me your thoughts on him as Lester Bangs. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I see him like, what do you call it, uh, a hippie kind of, uh, it's like... I do whatever I uh, I want to do. I say whatever I want to say. Rebellious somehow, and uh, 
and actually artistic in the way he articulates things. I mean, sometimes uh, using profanity, but I mean, it's like his views uh, to things is looking at, through artistic glasses. I mean, the way he socializes, the, the way he expresses his opinions. Yeah, there's a kind of um, sort of fourish energy to me that it talks about being real, saying the truth, being sincere, but it's sincere even if it will be painful, you know, and and uh, also like, for me, I'm lonely and I'm different, I'm out, kind of outside, I'm not part of the group and almost misunderstood, but I like it and these kind of dilemma of like, I'm better, but I'm worse for me, but I'm above you. So it's these four inner experience, I think yeah. it's shown here. I kind of saw him as a transmitting five. Uh, you know, again, hard to say, right? He wasn't a fully developed character. Um, but, uh, you, you know, for me... Um, so just a couple of things about Lester Banks, right? So uh, he did sort of coin, one of the stories is he coined the term punk rock, right? So, and if you think of the bands that he was advocating for, like Iggy Pop, for example, you know, was down on the doors, but, you know, up on Iggy Pop and other things like that. He liked raw, you know, kind of um, hard music. And uh, so he, he was also, however, very, to Tamara's earlier point, extremely well-educated, well-read, right? He was probably self-taught in most things, but there was a lot of references to philosophy and history and pop culture and all these things in his uh, in his music criticism that come through. It's, it's really great writing. If you ever get the chance to read any of it, I recommend it. Lester Bangs, B-A-N-G-S. So, and one of the things he talks with William about is this idea of setting boundaries, right? You know, don't let them buy you drinks. Don't let them suck you in. Don't let them make you, you know, they're going to want you to write pieces about how wonderful they are and how great everything is. And, you know, but you've got to, what is it he says to him? You've got to be um, honest and unmerciful. Yeah, that, that's. I, I think you're right. It's kind of that objectivity of the five. Yes. And he shows that in uh, when he talks about the end of rock and roll. And yes. He's able to not get too attached to something he likes and see that it's coming to an end. Yeah. Okay, good. So Tamara needs to leave us here. So Tamara, thanks for being with us uh, so far. And uh, sorry you couldn't stick around, but uh, we'll see you next time We uh, for the next episode. Thank you. See you. See you next episode. So we will uh, we'll continue on here. The Lester Bangs uh, uh, conversation again sets up this idea of emotional distance and boundaries from uh, from the people in the band, and this whole idea of analysis from a distance. I think that uh, that comes through. But what also starts to happen here, I think, and again, a theme that we see going through is this idea of connection to other right? Identification through other. And particularly when we start to see the first, uh, you know, so Lester Bangs gives William a, a a job, an assignment, right? I'll pay you $35, give me a thousand words on Black Sabbath. So he goes down to the, uh, the, the, the concert hall that night. He can't get in, right? The, the, the guard kicks him away, tells him to go up to the top of the ramp. And this is where he runs into the Band-Aids the first yeah. time. Okay. Tell Which is that, really right? interesting that it's band-aids because just an aid to the band but they call themselves that but when they're explaining what that means to them at some point i think it's penny lane who says 
we inspire music. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's so what would they do without us? We are the ones yes. who make it happen. And yes. so we're kind of helping, supporting, but then we're the muse, you know. <laughs> it's, exactly. Exactly. Sort of how the uh, two sometimes feel that it's the yes. power behind the scenes. Yes. Exactly right. And that's certainly how they saw themselves, right? And, uh, you know, one could debate, you know, how much of that role they actually filled, right? I mean, you know, was that really what they were, you know, doing or were they more of a convenience? But, you know, again, um, they certainly filled a hole emotionally in in the story, right? And again, brings through this this theme. So Penny Lane, who, again, played by Kate Hudson, she's the kind of the queen of the Band-Aids played by Kate Hudson. Again, I'm going to do some serious name dropping right here, right? So about 20 years ago, I actually stood within about five feet of Kate Hudson at a talk by the Dalai Lama. Okay, now, now, now go ahead. I dare anybody to beat that name drop right there, right? So, <laughs> so, so it was at a talk for the Dalai Lama, and of course, back at that time, this was 1998 or so. You know, he was real popular with the Hollywood set, and so you know, I could see Richard Gere over there, and Kate Hudson was there with her mother Goldie Hawn. Okay, and <laughs> now here's the funny thing: during the break in the talk, Goldie Hawn and Kate Hudson brought their own masseuse to a lecture by the Dalai Lama. And during the lunch hour, they were kind of in this kind of closed off area getting a massage during during the break. So uh, I will say Kate Hudson, one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. I mean, just, you know, back then she was, you know, uh, stunningly uh, attractive. Uh, it's funny that what you just did is kind of two-ish, isn't it? It <laughs> sure is. I'm sticking with the theme of the podcast here. Name dropping, show how connected you are. It's very twoish. Yes. And this, you know, this captures kind of what's happening at the heart of the two, I think, is that who I am and what my value is depends on who I'm connected to. Yeah. Okay? And why a lack of connection can feel so desperate to a two is because if they're not connected to anybody, they don't know who they are. They feel this existential dread. It's funny how the picture of the movie, at least one of them, is mm-hmm. Kate Hudson, Lenny Pen- uh, Penny Lane, with sunglasses, and in the sunglasses you can see the band. You know, so yes. it's kind of it, it. It reflects what you're just saying. It's she yes. is because she's connected to the band. Yes, if the eyes are the seat, uh, you know, the kind of the window into the soul, then the band is her soul, right? And, yeah. you know, vice versa. So it's very much about identity. He makes his way into the concert by flattering people and name dropping yes. as well. Yes. So yes. he makes all the uh, Stillwater band members feel special by saying their names mm-hmm. and how good they are. And the songs that he likes and why and <clears throat> things to show that he knows who they are and that he appreciates them and makes them feel great. And yeah. that uh, it's a way that in which twos get what they want. Did you feel that it was not genuine in any way when he was saying those things to him? No. no. He just it, cho- it, chose what to say really well. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Of course, uh-huh. he was smart, but right. I think I felt 
I felt it genuine. Yeah, I completely agree, right? I completely agree. And again, you know, that just shows that for the two, it's, you know, it's not necessarily artifice when they're flattering people, right? It really does come from a, I know you, right? I, I you know, I understand you. I, I, I get it that we can overlook sometimes. After the concert, you could see him on cloud nine, right? I mean, he's saying goodbye to everybody and calling everybody by name. I'm talking about William here, right? And he just, you know, he found his tribe. And it, it was, again, it was this, I, I've connected to these people that I idolize. And, I, and, and, you know, and here's where we really start to see this, this theme coming in of adoration of the special other. And, you know, particularly we see this in the navigating too, uh, is this, I, you know, my value is in the quality of the people, the quality of the group I'm connected with. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, go ahead. And there's also the scene where he thinks he's introducing Penny Lane to Russell. Yes. Then we realize that they know each other already, but that greeting or that connection they made you know, you understand why it is how it is, but it is yes. very intense. Yes. And again, it's all about connection. So without yes. saying much, they said everything to each other. Yes. Yes. And I would say, too, that's a pretty good example of a purely transmitting moment, right? Uh, this, you know, intense, you know, sexual, intense connection between yeah. people. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Okay, so William finds himself on tour with the band, right? He gets an assignment. He gets a call from Rolling Stone magazine, which was huge at the time, right? It's still a magazine that's going, but Rolling Stone in the late 60s, early 70s, I mean, that was it. There was even a song that they sing later about being on the cover of Rolling Stone, right? Um, so, and Rolling Stone was named after a Bob Dylan song, like a Rolling Stone. The founder and editor of Rolling Stone, uh, Jan Wenner, actually makes a real quick cameo in the movie when uh, William is looking into all the taxis and he sees a guy sitting there reading the paper. Uh, that's the founder of um, Rolling Stone. Again, name dropping here, so, uh, you know, <laughs> for, for what it's worth. So, Good education for me. <laughs> yeah. William goes on tour. Uh, they go to a couple places first. And then, uh, so there's a few things that happen. I want to get to the part where they end up in Topeka. And yeah, but, but before that, I think that yeah. he observes, but then starts uh, building relationships and trust very easily. It was just hard for people not to like him. So he mm -hmm. should have been almost avoided or treated with more suspicion by the band 
because he was going to write an article about them. But although they tried, they just couldn't help liking him yeah. because he was, I don't know, nice, adorable, trustworthy. Yes. I think, you know, William struck me as more of a nine-ish character than a two-ish character, right? I mean, the movie is about the theme of the two, but I think his character was probably a navigating nine, right? And so, you know, and and I think I want to come back towards the end of the podcast and talk about this distinction between the connection of the two, the merging of the nine, and the intense connection of the uh, transmitting instinctual bias, right? So, but, uh, so yes, yeah, absolutely. So, and again, we get into this idea of truth and honesty and boundaries because they refer to him as the enemy right because he's a journalist but they also take him in as a friend so it kind of you know again it's this all right who where are we there's also an issue of truth when he's talking about penny lane you know they kind of first meet and there's this connection between them and she said you know okay let's be honest with you how old are we really right and they start out at 18 and then she ends up at she's actually 16 and he's actually 15 and again it sets up this idea of what's true and what's not and how does this shape our our relationships. Okay. There's also something that she says at some point in the bus. I'm not sure if it's, if it's in that first or in that part of the conversation where she says, uh, Russell is my last project. Mm. I do this for very few people. Yes. And, mm. and it's like, I'm making him a star and, yes. and I am the one behind it. And, Yes. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. Yes, very much the pride thing. Again, and just to be clear, Russell was the uh, guitar player for the band yeah. uh, Stillwater. And, um, you know, she they were having this intense affair. Now, of course, Russell was married, and that comes back to be an issue a bit later in the movie. So they stop in a couple of towns, and in one of them, Topeka, Kansas which is right in the middle of the country, kind of, uh, well, I've never been there, so I'm sure it's a very nice place, but, um, you know, it's not the most popular destination uh, in the world. And so the band has a big fight because they get t-shirts made and everybody in the band is out of focus except for Russell, you know, the the good-looking guy, right? You You know, this causes a big fight among the band members. So he decides that he only wants to interact with authentic people and so he uh, him and, and william go out for a walk and these young guys come by and say hey you want to go to a party they end up at this party and he's all thrilled to be at a party with real people and he's connecting to them and you could tell he's really in his element here <laughs> it was pretty sad i think <laughs> um because he was in his element whatever he would say I mean, they would adore him anyway yes. because he was a star, but he was just talking nonsense all the time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it was real. Now he gets on drugs and uh, almost kill him, kills himself jumping into a pool from the roof. But yes. uh, And at some point he says something like, I'm a gold... Uh, I'm, a, I'm a golden god. A golden god. Yes. And then he he denies that. He said, "Did I really say that?" <laughs> um, so I think it was funny, but a bit disturbing or or sad to me to see that that in his he's in his element, yes, but not really something that would be sustainable. 
he wanted right. to stay and live there almost. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, particularly while he was drunk, and then when he took the LSD, yeah. right? And uh, you know, and again, what does LSD do? But it breaks down all your boundaries about uh, yeah. things, and you know, opens you up. And uh, so now, of course, when he sobered up. And they are in the aftermath of that fight over the T-shirts. You know, they they show them leaving on the bus. Okay, and none of them are talking to each other. They all look miserable. And then what happens, Mariosa? And then there's a song, and one of them starts singing, and the other one follows. And all of a sudden, they're all singing, and they're all kind of it's all warmth again. Yes, you know, everybody's yes. smiling, and you can feel. It's just like a cliche, but you can feel the love, you know, you can feel that they care for each other and that they're happy to be together. And um, it's, yeah, like a nice feeling. Yeah, so so you're absolutely right. And first of all, it was not just a song. It was Tiny Dancer by Elton John. And there's no way anybody can listen to Tiny Dancer without singing along unless you're a robot, um, you know, in, in, in my view. And, you know, it starts with, you know, the drummer just kind of tapping his, his drumsticks in the back. And then another guy starts nodding his head. And then one guy sings out one line. And before you know it, it's like karaoke night on the bus, right? Now, of course, William, you know, let's not forget, is a uh, is a high school student. Right. And he was told he could go away for a couple of weeks. And we don't know how long it's been, but it's been more than this. And and he says to he turns to Penny in the midst of this and he says, I need to go home. And you remember what she says to him? You are home. You are home. Yes. Again, speaks to this idea of the power of connection and that our home is in who we're connected to, right? Yeah. Rather than a place. Okay. It's the, the the people that kind of make up the sum of us. So they kind of pull themselves together, they move on, they kind of all make up, uh, they go on to the next town. And the the next uh, scene I wanted to talk about, I've titled here Let's Deflower the Kid. Right. So uh, uh, so the um so this was you know again an interesting scene where Again, the boundaries are breaking down, right? So William is in the bathtub in the hotel room trying to write his article because all the Band-Aids are in the other room and they're having a pillow fight or something. And and Penny Lane comes into the bathroom and sits down on the toilet and starts going to the bathroom, right? And, you know, so again... And, and he mentions how he had pictured kind of getting to know each other better than seeing each other at home, kind of in the real world. And then maybe uh, after having a relationship, they could see each other in the bathroom, but not so soon. Right, right. And so then, you know, he, you know, he leaves and he goes out into the other room and the, and the other band-aids say, okay, let's deflower the kid, meaning that they're going to have sex with him and take his virginity away. And um, there's this really fascinating dynamic between him and Penny, while these other three girls are seducing him and disrobing him and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's like he's watching her. She's almost at the door and the other girls are inviting her to join them. And Penny Lane stays at the door, looks at William, and he's like, come here, please. I mean, you're the only one I want. And she's kind of seducing her, him, but also saying, this is how I read it. Like, I'm not going to do this to you. You know, I'm going to leave you. Enjoy this. I'm leaving. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, and it, and and there's some nice camera work on this where they kind of do these increasing close-ups to where they just are looking at the eyes of the two of them. And even at one point, she kind of puts her fingers over her eyes, you know, her hand over her eyes, and then spreads her fingers. So she's looking at one eye, kind of playing around with him. So it is this odd moment of kind of sexual and kind of sisterly and kind of motherly almost. It's like she is taking care of him in a way but yeah. also protecting him from her, right? yeah. uh, I, I felt, right? So um, an interesting scene. You know, and again, and this brings me to this distinction between these energies that we talk about, right? This, um, you know, the transmitting energy, which is, you know, very sexual in nature, right? It's about reproduction. It's about, you know, doing the things that increase the chances of reproduction. And I think that energy we can see throughout the movie in the relationship between Penny Lane and William. I'm sorry, yes. and Russell. And Russell, right. I think that's the most intense thing we we get to see in the movie. That yes, part. yes. And, and, so, and, and William's mother, but it's not sexual. Yes. It's still intense, but not sexual. Yeah, and that's so. That's another example of transmitting. That's you know, kind of non-sexual. It is. I am transmitting these ideas to you. Right. And she even says at one point, I'm a university professor. How come I can't teach my own kids? Right. Yeah. And you know, and and for her, it's all about sharing her wisdom. Yeah. Uh, which is another element of the uh, transmitting domain. Okay. And, and the other, and, and in terms of Russell as well, when William at the beginning of the movie says, your guitar is incendiary or something like that. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of words that speak of transmitting because of yes. how intense it is. But the relationship between Penny and William is different. Clearly, he's in love with her, infatuated with her. But there's also this protective element to it, and it's, you know, it's uh, um, a bit different. And her relationship to him is more about that two connection, right, of protection, looking out for, I know what you need, I know what's best for you, let me, you know, give that to you. And his, you know, with him, as kind of the, the navigating nine, there's just this idea of getting lost in the others, right? We talk about how the navigating nine in particular can lose their sense of identity to the group. And this is a great example of it, right? I mean, he has no ability to set boundaries on what he wants and what he needs and just kind of goes along with all these much stronger personalities. Yeah. Another thing we see in that uh, related to uh, the type two is when um, he's calling home from the payphone to talk to his mother and Russell grabs the phone out of William's hand. And at first he's kind of cocky and smug and, you know, you know she's going to be so impressed with me and, you know, that her son is talking to this rock star and she's having none of it. <laughs> yeah. And she tells him what to do and how to do it and to kind of find a better way to can get on with life and uh, and he says yes mom yes mom <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly right you can see him kind of standing up straight and this shock yeah. on his face and 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 afterwards he says your mom kind of freaked me out man you yeah. know and and that, and that's when william pats him on the shoulder and says well she means well okay. yeah <laughs> are you interested in learning more about our approach to the enneagram Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, 
including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. So we find out that Russell's wife is going to be joining the band in New York, meaning that they have to get rid of Penny Lane because Russell doesn't want his wife meeting, encountering Penny, as one might imagine. So there's this kind of a heartbreaking scene where she is actually kind of uh, sold to another band. I'm drawing a blank on the name of the band now, but uh, uh, for $50 and a case of Heineken beer. Uh, so, you know, and, and there's just such a coldness to that scene, right? And an interesting, so there's a really interesting musical lead up to that, right? Because they first show Penny dancing, if you remember, and there's this lovely Cat, uh, Cat Stevens song called The Wind playing while she's dancing, right? And then they do this quick cut to them strutting to the airplane, right? They're now going to start flying by private jet while they play uh, Jimi Hendrix, Voodoo Child, Slight Return is the name of the song, right? This kick and guitar solo that you know there's nothing more badass than that uh, piece of music and then they cut to this scene and it's clarence carter singing steal away which is a song about infidelity right and they're trying to clean up the mess of his infidelity by selling penny lane right so again but i, I just I, I was just marveling listening to the music the use of music in this song so i, I had to share yeah. that and and i agree that it was cold but they were pretending to be cool about it. And uh, when William, it's almost shocked that this is happening, Russell stands up and explains to him that it, they have to do it because it's, his wife is coming. And right. uh, so he, he cares about it. Um, that's what I felt, that he cares about it. But it's just, this is a pretend to be selling it, but we're, we need yeah. to get rid of her. Yeah. yeah. Now, of course, she doesn't go, and she ends up going to New York as well. And they're yeah, all but before that, before that, yeah. William tells her not to go to New York, and he ends up because she insists in going. He tells him, he tells her what happened, that they sold her for a can of beer, and and she's just so shocked and uh, sad to hear it. And it's funny that she asks, "What kind of beer?" <laughs> but but it's like how much it, it, to me it was how much am i worth kind of right. what's what's my price you know so mm. i was sold but by how much it's like when yeah. they offered me camels for you in egypt <laughs> <laughs> they weren't enough uh but uh <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole long story we don't need to go into now but yeah okay yeah. <laughs> um, so, so it's like what kind of beard which is so sweet sad and deep yeah yes yes so she ends up uh they're at a muse uh, a restaurant called max's kansas city a famous new york restaurant from the era she shows up and it causes this huge problem because russell's sitting there with his wife and the wife asks 
who is she with? And all the band members say she's with me, right? So they know, uh, oh boy, now, now they got a problem. The manager goes over, kind of chases her away, and she attempts to commit suicide. Um, yeah, and then William follows her and finds her in, uh, the ho- in the hotel room and rescues her, calls for, I mean, asks for, ask for help, and they stop her from dying. Yeah. yeah, so she overdosed on quaaludes, and uh, he calls the doctor, and they come up. And again, another really interesting use of music, because while they're pumping her stomach in the bathroom, Stevie wonders, my Sharia more, right? Uh, you know, my, my, my love starts playing. And he's looking at her with his, you know, uh, and, and the lyrics playing are lovely as a sunny day. Uh, distant as the Milky Way, right? And she's throwing up in the, you know, and he's got these loving eyes, and you know, and she's throwing up in the in the bathtub. So it's a, again, this, um, you know, what love can do to us when we look at people. After this, they end up in the airplane, and the band is in the airplane. It's a small plane, and they had decided to start using a plane rather than the bus, so they could do more tours. It was actually Steve Miller, the musician, head of the Steve Miller band, that first came up with this idea of using. Um, um, airplanes to get from town to town because he could do more tours and make more money. Um, and so they kind of throw that into the movie. They run into an electrical storm. And again, there's a bit of a homage here to two events. Uh, one of the guys starts singing the song Peggy Sue, which was a Buddy Holly song. And of course, Buddy Holly died in a plane crash. And it was also an homage to Leonard Skinner, uh, the band of, you know, with, with whom quite a few members died in a plane crash and was one of the bands that Cameron Crowe followed. So while they're on the airplane, they think they're all going to die. So they start telling the truth to each other. They're just making confessions about how much yeah. they dislike <laughs> each other. And what's his name? Jeff tells um, Russell that nobody really likes him. and. Right after uh, Russell has said that he loves them all. And yes. It starts off with, I love you all. Right? Yes. And then it goes downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, because the next revelation is, is uh, the band manager saying, uh, I, I, I ran over a guy one time. <laughs> His face still haunts me. I didn't stop to see if he was okay. Right. And, uh, you know, and then, and then the other manager says, you know, I love you all, but, you know, I stole some money from you, and you know, it's only yeah. because I deserved it. And you know, did, and, did you uh, see that the first manager was Jimmy Fallon? No, I did. He, yeah, did I say it? Was it really? No, no, no. Uh, did you see? Yeah, he was. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So they start confessing all these things, including you know, I slept with your wife. You know, we slept with your girlfriend. All this sort of thing. I'm still, still in love her. with your wife. I'm still in love <laughs> with your wife. I hate you. You know, I hope you die. You know, kind of thing. Um, and when the um, when the plane ends up being okay, again they they cut to them all leaving, uh, walking through the airport. Uh, again, I'm, I hate to be a real music geek here, but the song playing is Neil Young's Cortez the Killer. Uh, this haunting, incredible guitar solo from that song as they're walking through the hallway, and William and the band separate at that point. Yeah, and and Russell tells him write whatever you want because at, up yes. to that point they have been telling him write about it about us and make us famous uh, do this do that Ro- don't write this write that and now russell says uh write whatever you want but 
when he does write whatever he wants, they deny saying it. Okay, yeah. so there's this betrayal of William by the band members. And again, we get back to this issue of truth and connection, right? Who are you in this relationship? How much can I trust you? How much appreciation do you have for what we've done with you, right? From the band's perspective, you know, we've shown you a good time, right? We've opened your eyes. We've traveled, you know, taking you all over the place. You know, you kind of owe us to be nice. Yeah, they, they even like, said, it's not like they they implied that. They said it to him. And they said, we did everything but get you laid. And <laughs> he looks with his yeah. funny face like, don't yeah. worry about that. <laughs> right, right, right. Russell, uh, I'm sorry, not Russell. William runs into his sister, who's now a flight attendant in the airport. And she says, hey, let's go somewhere. I'll take you anywhere you want to go. Yeah, um, he looks and- miserable, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he, uh, he's ready to go home. That's for sure, right? You can tell he's uh, physically and emotionally spent. Um, so where he wants her to go with him is home to see their mother. And, uh, so they go and they have this little bit of an awkward reunion on the front porch, uh, when, when they get there, right? Uh, the mother is seeing both of them and hugs Anita, the daughter. Eventually, right? I I mean, they kind of stand there and look at each other and then they do hug and it's this really awkward hug. Yeah. And and it's funny because she says to his to her daughter, I forgive you. (laughs) (laughs) And Anita says, I didn't apologize. (laughs) Yes, yes. All right. So, um, (laughs) again, we have issues with boundaries here, right? Yeah, because Um, you did it to me, you know? So you left and you did something to me when I did so much for you. So it's kind of expecting something in return that she didn't get. And then she could forgive her, but I don't think uh, Anita had anything to apologize about right right that was going to continue to be a strained relationship right i mean they did seem to have some healing there but um i think that you know that's going to be a complicated relationship he he submits the article to rolling stone they love it but then the band denies all of the quotes right when they do fact checking the band said no none of that stuff happened he made it all up so the story gets pulled Uh, of course he's quite depressed about that and everybody hears in the uh, the band aid community about what Russell and the rest of the band did to William uh, regarding his article, and uh, so he starts to feel guilt. One of the other bandmates said, "You should call Penny." Uh, Russell calls Penny and says, "I'd like to meet. What's your address?" Now, of course, um, something we didn't mention earlier, but uh, Penny and uh, William actually live in the same town of San Diego, and uh, so she gives him William's, William's address. Address. So he shows up at their house meeting the mother, uh, expecting to find Penny. (laughs) (laughs) What a surprise. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, and so he says, is she here? And thinks he's talking about the sister. And the sister is saying, oh, boy, I hope he's here for me. And, of course, he's not. And so before he goes in to kind of make amends with William, the mother says to him, you know, I thought we connected when we spoke on the phone. (laughs) Which was just a, a great line. And again. That two thing, right? It's about connection. So Russell calls Rolling Stone, admits that William's article was legitimate, and uh, they end the movie as William is asking Russell more questions about rock and roll in his bedroom. What about subtypes, Maria Jose? What subtypes did we see in the movie? 
So we saw Penny. That's an easy one. Transmitting two. Transmitting two. Now, different to uh, the mother, to Elaine, um, that it's uh, transmitting to as well. This was, uh, Penny's was a sweeter and more sexual version of the transmitting two. Whereas um, the Elaine was more, a bit more intense in terms of uh, rigid or severe a bit. Yeah. 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 And as you know, something we always say about these instinctual biases is we don't always manifest all of the qualities, mm. or, you know, all of the behaviors in the domain equally. Right. Yeah. And that's an example of, you know, Penny and, you know, maybe it's because of her age and, you know, whatever else, but is certainly, you know, the more seductive and sexual displaying those characteristics, whereas the mother is more about legacy and passing on information and controlling and pride. Yeah. Do you know what we haven't talked about? What's it, that? Or maybe we have, but not so explicitly. The intensity in the kind of how they look at people. She has this transmitting two thing that it's, they look at you like wanting to get inside of you, you know, yes. it's uh, really, really intensely. And, and Penny has all and that look throughout the movie. Uh, and I see that, especially in transmitting twos, they just don't stop looking at you. Yes, yes, absolutely right. It's almost, this is a very negative image, but, it, you know, it, it makes me think of the, you know, the uh, the alien from Alien that kind of gets <laughs> stuck on somebody's face and sticks, you know. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't mean to be unkind to twos, right? Uh, because obviously they're not all like that. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There's this uh, connection, this need for connection, and this attempts to connect through the eyes. Uh, yeah. that we see in twos very often. Again, I, I I would probably think of Lester Bangs as a transmitting five. Um, you know, a lot of four stuff going on. We don't use the wing theory, but in my experience, the transmitting five usually identifies as a kind of a five with a four wing. There is yeah. that creativity, that yeah. intensity there that, you know, adds a different flavor. Uh, William, again, I would say is probably a um, uh, nine. navigating nine. Sister felt a little bit seven-ish to me, maybe, but uh, you know, not really a, a fully formed character. How about how about Russell? Russell, you say he, yeah. yeah, to me, he was like a transmitting four. <laughs> now, well, he's a he was a character, so mm-hmm. you never know. But yeah, uh, the only thing that was a bit off for me was that he was just sweet and naive at times, you know. Yeah, but then misunderstood that I'm above, but I'm this and. I'm different, you know. There was something about being different, but feeling the loyalty towards a band. So, what do you think? Yeah, it could have been a four, could have been a transmitting nine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there was a bit of that going on. Again, a little hard. He was kind of a stock character in a lot of ways. You know, a decent actor, but not a great actor. So, I think he was a little bit hard to tell. And you know, most of the other characters, I don't think, were really fleshed out well enough to no. uh, have clear. Uh, Enneagram types, but uh, great character study. And for me, you know, kind of as a final thought, you know, again, I've talked a lot about the music in this movie. And, you know, there were just these moments that in addition to saying the right thing, you know, you would hear lyrics in the background speaking to what was happening, Mm -hmm. right, uh, a number of times. But also there was this, you you know, the, the, the music was used to speak the unspeakable right and this is what the arts do right they put into feeling 
that which can't be put into words, right? So mm-hmm. again, Cortez the killer when they're walking uh, in the airport uh, down the hall after the you know almost plane crash, when he first listens to the, the Who's Tommy uh, after the sister leaves, right? She tells him light a candle and listen to this, and it'll change your life. You know anybody? I've never listened to Tommy while watching a candle, but I have watched. I have listened to Tommy under other, we'll say, distorted, circum- distorted circumstances, and uh, it was, uh, you know, it's one of those pieces of music that will, uh, you know, really blow your mind. And there's so much about this need for connection that's hard to put into words. Yeah. And I think they, you know, the music sort of served that purpose of helping to put into some form those things which we can't talk about. Final thoughts? I would watch it again. In a few years. <laughs> Tanner made reference to it being three hours long. It's not three hours long. It is, it is a long movie. I think, no, it's you know, two maybe, hours. Yeah, I think it's about two hours, 15 or so. But, yeah. uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's a good movie. I've seen it a few times. I think it paints a, a, a fairer picture of the two than people have in their minds. Yeah. And I like that. I have to agree. And, 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 and I'll go a little bit further on that because... I have always wrestled with identifying male twos, right? Whenever I assess somebody's Enneagram type, it just seems like something that's just so darn foreign to me. Um, you know, being an eight and having my own biases, I just can't imagine why anybody would be a two, right? And, you know, and I mean, I, they're perfectly lovely people. I, I, I get it, but it's just, it's just foreign to me and uh, to my experience. This movie did help me really appreciate that energy mm-hmm. and what it brings a lot more uh, than I had before. So, so I encourage people to watch the movie, pay attention to the soundtrack and uh, learn more about the type too. So next up, another Cameron Crowe movie, Jerry Maguire written and directed uh, starring Tom Cruise. Uh, another great soundtrack, by the way, but I won't go into as much detail about it. So thanks for being with us, everybody. Uh, Maria Jose, thanks for, joining us thank you see you next time thank you for listening to the enneagram in a movie podcast part of the awareness to action podcast network find out more about the enneagram and our offerings at awareness to action.com and if you enjoyed the episode please go online and give us a review we'll see you next time